Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Tonight, we're live in Tūranganui Akiwa, Gisborne, where commemorations have begun to mark 250 years since James Cook first arrived on these shores. Early tomorrow morning, a flotilla of tall ships will anchor just off this shore, and amongst them, a replica of Cook's endeavour will be met by protesters. I'll speak to one of the protest organisers tonight, plus the Minister of Māori Crown Relations, about how we should remember James Cook. Plus, the debate over whether to let festival goers test their illegal drugs for safety. Three people were hospitalised over the weekend, apparently after taking drugs at a concert. But would testing help keep people safe? I think if it wasn't for the quick actions of all those involved um, at, at the event and at the hospital, it could have been a very different outcome. And our rubbish problem is piling up on the plate of Green Minister Eugenie Sage. Has she got an answer beyond more landfills? This is exactly the wrong place to put a landfill. We'll have thousands of young people to come and support us. We'll gridlock State Highway number one. But we begin tonight with drug testing at festivals. New Zealand First has upset its coalition partners' plan to allow testing at music, music festivals this summer. Law & Order spokesperson Derek Ball says his party won't support the law change needed because testing would only, quote, legitimise and encourage drug use. The MP wasn't available to explain his position further tonight, but I'm joined by Jez Watson from Know Your Stuff New Zealand, who want to offer free testing to festival goers, and in Australia, where there have been a number of drug-related deaths at music festivals, I'm joined by Gary Christian of Drug Free Australia. Mm. Tēnā kōrua, thanks for your time. Jez, I will begin with you. How does drug testing at festivals actually work? Hi there. We set up a tent and people will bring us a substance that they uh, want to get tested, that they're planning on taking. The first thing we say to people is that no drug use is safe. So the safest thing they can do is not test something. But let's be realistic, uh, by the age of 25, about 80% of New Zealanders have, try have tried an illegal substance. So we analyse what they've got and then have a conversation with them about uh, the risks of what they have. We don't say anything is safe, uh, everything has risks, but uh, it's, we have a respectful conversation, and for the people who find out that what they've got is, is not what they're expecting, that it's something more dangerous, then about 60% of those people will throw it away, will not take it um, straight off. And then for the people that do intend to take something, mm. we'll have a conversation about how they can reduce the risks of actually using that substance. Would drug testing have prevented the hospitalisations at the weekend? We'd give it a damn good go. That's why we go to festivals. And we are, we've got very good evidence over... Actually, we've been doing this for five years, on, you know, quietly. Um, we've got great evidence to see, show that we are changing how people behave with respect to drugs, that we are giving them good advice on how to stay safe, and they are following that advice and you know, being more respectful around drugs. As mentioned, there have been a number of deaths at Australian music festivals. Gary, why do you oppose drug testing at festivals? Uh, simply because uh, drug testing is always looking for uh, drugs that mostly don't exist. Um, only 11 deaths within, a, within Australia have been from other deadly drugs that have been mixed with ecstasy, and yet Pill testing greenlights ecstasy, which has been responsible for, we estimate, about 300 deaths within Australia. So when they're greenlighting, 
the very substance which is killing everybody here within Australia doesn't make any sense at all. 300 deaths within Australia? That sounds like an extraordinary number for a drug that is considered by many experts to be at the lower end of the harm scale. Yeah, I think it's a bit of an eyebrow raiser, but uh, we actually have a study that was done back in 2010 on a five-year period uh, and looking at the number of ecstasy deaths or MDMA deaths that we had at that time, it was 82 deaths, 16 per year on average. And uh, if you generalise that across uh, 25 years, allowing for a bit of a decline uh, before 2010, then accelerating after that, it's around the 300 mark that we estimate have died from ecstasy, not from other drugs. Uh, there are 11 mm. deaths from other drugs like NBOM or MDA, um, but not MDA, but uh, the uh, PMA, and uh, most of them from ecstasy. Well, it's interesting you say that because I've been looking at some notes from, from two leading drug experts in Australia, Alex Wodak and Gideon Warhart, who say that MDMA is one of the least dangerous drugs known, much less dangerous than alcohol, tobacco or cannabis. That being said, I think we would all agree there is no such thing um, as a risk-free drug. What do you make of those numbers, Jez? Well, there are certainly risks um, around substitution. Um, we, as Gary mentioned, PMA, that's a very dangerous drug. We've seen that, and the person who that had that, we advised him what it was, he threw it in the fire. He didn't take that. There are also, yes, there are risks to taking too much MDMA, but the, there's been three deaths in New Zealand associated with MDMA, and at least two of those people, they died because they drank too much water. They thought that that was what they were supposed to do. Now, we can have a conversation with people, and we do, about how much water to drink if you're going to be out all night dancing. That's, you know, one to two cups of mm. water's not great, electrolyte is better, just like if you are, you know, doing rug playing rugby and sweating a lot. You need to replace that fluid. And that's the conversation we have with people. But once again, this is, this is a debate about prohibition, is it not? Gary, it, drugs have been illegal in both New Zealand and Australia for decades. But you just hear some of those statistics. 80% of young people in New Zealand have tried an illicit substance at some stage. Clearly, prohibition isn't working. Well, I don't think it's uh, anything to do with prohibition uh, here in Australia. I can speak for here. We do everything to facilitate drug use in this country. We uh, provide um, needle exchange programs. We have methadone with people on that for up to 40 years. We have injecting mm. rooms. This is facilitating drug use. This is not prohibition in any real uh, shape or form. So do you, you, just to be clear, do you oppose needle exchanges? Uh, in actual fact, on very good evidence uh, from the institutes of medicine over in the US, which are actually quite drug liberal, they actually found that there was no protective effect uh, for needle exchange programs uh, when it came to HIV, uh, particularly for hepatitis C. So, uh, so on those grounds, we just don't uh, support them. We used to support them until we saw that evidence come through, and uh, now these days we don't see a protective effect for them. Jez, does the legality of a substance do anything to stop people from using? Just to does. answer what Gary raised there, um, we, the needle exchange in New Zealand has operated for 30 years. It used to be illegal to give someone a syringe for medical purposes, but they, they went away, got on and, and just did it straight up. And that's one of the reasons why New Zealand has got pretty low rates of HIV um, and um, hepatitis mm. through 
um, transmission of, 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 of needles. We're, we're dealing with the other end of things. We're dealing with party drugs. And, well, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. I don't think prohibition... Look, we've got customs trying to keep things out of the country. Mm. Um, stuff's still going to get in. We've got police arresting dealers, but there will always be drugs at festivals and there will always be people that want to take them. So we want to keep those people safe. But, but when you're on the front line and you do a test, a test positive for ecstasy or MDMA, isn't that essentially a green light to someone who's considering using that drug? They were already considering using that drug. What we can say to them is, you know, we never give people a green light, we talk about the risks. So, for instance, mm. uh, one pill might not be one dose. We've seen pills with you know, potentially five doses in one. And you know, MDMA, like any other drug, you take too much, you're going to get into a lot of difficulty. So if we can advise people of those risks, they can make safer, more informed decisions. Something we would all agree on is that the current system isn't working. We've had numerous deaths in both New Zealand and Australia uh, from drug-related problems in recent times. So, Gary, what would be an alternative? Look, uh, first of all, I've just got to reject this idea that you overdose on MDMA. It's actually very difficult to overdose on MDMA. Um, People die, and not from huge amounts. There are people who are walking around today who have had 77 times more ecstasy than a person who has died from it. I, I come, I, just sorry to interrupt you, Gary. We're just, I come back to those. I come back to the, that that quote from Alex Wodak and Gideon Warhoff. MDMA is one of the least dangerous drugs known, much less dangerous than alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, and I'm not debating for a moment that it is harmful to, to use illicit substances, but, but I want to know what you see as an alternative, alternative to the current way we treat drug use in New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, look, I think that we've got to get serious about prevention and uh, harm reduction has not been working well for us in either country. And uh, we really need to be looking at good prevention. I think when it comes to ecstasy, I would like to see users actually educated about what this substance does to their brain, what it does to their heart, what it does to their internal organs. It actually ages them and there are people who die from that organ damage. Uh, those are the kind of things that mm. need to be taught. And uh, there are other countries in the world, Iceland, Sweden, that have brought their drug use down dramatically to the lowest levels in the developed world and they do it through good prevention and rehab. Well. I see that Iceland had 29 deaths from drug overdoses in the first half of last year. But, Jez, would you agree education is important across the board? That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing in front of people with the substances they're, they're planning on taking. Um, and I've, look, I've got to say, if, if MDMA was so dangerous, we know from wastewater testing that uh, New Zealanders take about 40,000 doses per week of MDMA. If it was so dangerous then we would see that in hospitals, and we don't. There are risks to it, but we can mitigate those risks through testing and through good advice. Tēnā kōrua. We, we appreciate your time this evening. Jez Watson from Know Your Stuff and Gary Christian from Drug Free Australia. After the break on Q&A, we're in Gisborne, where protests are planned for tomorrow's Tuia 250 commemorations. And a Chinese company wants to build a landfill north of Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, so why did our government approve its go-ahead? Then, later, what did President Trump's most ardent supporters think of his possible impeachment? We're on the ground in Arizona, where Republicans are ready to march on Washington. It needs to stop. It needs to stop now. 
And if it does not stop, they will force millions of Americans to go to Washington, D.C., fill the buildings, and clean the place out. That's what needs to be done. No mai hoki mai. Welcome back. Early tomorrow morning, a flotilla of tall ships, including a replica of James Cook's Endeavour, will sail into Tūranganui Akiwa, Poverty Bay, just as Cook did 250 years ago. Tui of 250 marks those first encounters between Māori and the European explorers, events to showcase great uh, voyages, be they Pacific, Māori or European, are being held all over the country over the next couple of months. But a protest is planned for tomorrow's ceremony, and one of the protest organisers, Maurice Lant, joins us now from Gisborne. Tēnā koe. welcome to Q&A. Why are you protesting? Oh, tēnā koe, um, Jack. Um, well, we're protesting, think it was 250 years on, we're dealing with the aftermath of what's occurred since the birthing of the endeavour. It's pretty clear that um, Māori have suffered tremendously, tremendously from the impacts of what's occurred of colonisation. In what ways have Māori suffered? Well, we're dealing with high numbers of incarceration. Uh, we've dealt with poor health. We've had high stats in suicide, methamphetamine, and also the implications of education. Um, it's been pretty well documented, it's been well known that um, we've been in that mode for a very long time. And we're up to the stage now that um, we're dealing with those issues. And small towns like Tūranganui Akiwa are in need of services, resources and help. So anything other than to say that the, the colonisation has not affected Māoridom would be incorrect. Is it James Cook's fault? Well, isn't it? Um, the reality of it is, is that when he arrived in Tūranganui Akiwa, he came under the banner of the British government. And in that particular time, with them came a set of rules, regulations and other organisation systems that we are not, and we're not accustomed to. Has any good come from Pākehā and Māori contact? Well, what I can say is that um, where Māori are concerned, a lot of our issues and the systematic processes that have occurred have not been to the beneficial interests of Māoridom mm. as a whole. And we've seen that through the stats straight across the board. But most, if not all, Māori in New Zealand have some Pākehā lineage. So in a sense, I suppose, um, Pākehā history and the history of James Cook is important to many Māori in a positive sense. Well, that might be so. I may have Pākehā lineage in me, but um, in that regard, uh, they may take their view. I, in this particular case, don't. It's interesting to consider the words of Dame Anne Salmon, who wrote An Authoritative History of Captain James Cook. She d described <coughs> him in, in quite complex terms. She says this, Does the evidence suggest James Cook was a white supremacist, contemptuous of Māori and willing to kill them at random? The weight of evidence suggests otherwise. But how would you personally describe James Cook? Well, I don't see James Cook as relevant to me. I see that he has brought a history with him that obviously Māori, I mean, my people, have considered to be offensive in many areas. It may not be the case for non-Māori, but it is for those of us that consider that history is not a part of ours. Mm. And if it is, it doesn't bring with it a positive energy. What do you say to, to Pākehā watching this evening who see James Cook as a big part of their history? Well, 
that's their privilege or their prerogative. They can look at James Cook as a part of their history. I just don't look at him as a part of mine and neither do a lot of my people. What are you planning for tomorrow's protests? Tomorrow's protest is about us having a voice on a lot of the issues that I've just discussed earlier with you, Jack. Mm. Um, and our people have had a lot of suffering over the 250 years. Um, in our presentation, we're dealing with issues, in our protest, we're dealing with issues around methamphetamine, suicide, and also child uplifts. And those are huge issues for Māori Dim today. They are systematic of a system that did not work for us. It was designed not for Māori, it was designed to fail us, but it was designed to reach out to those that are of wealthy backgrounds. So should we be acknowledging this anniversary at all? Well, anniversary, I'm not acknowledging it. Many of us on the protest are not acknowledging it. It's another purpose of why we're actually here protesting. We didn't want it here. We didn't ask for the birthing of the endeavour in, the endeavour in Tūranganui Akiwa, and we would have hoped that when the Prime Minister had said that we are a government mm. that is empathetic and looking for kindness, that they would have considered that when they carried on supporting the endeavours birthing in Tūranganui Akiwa. Can we undo the damage? Can we decolonise? And how would we do that? Well, I think that's an issue that Māori need to uh, look at um, providing in terms of frameworks that need to be introduced today. I think that we need to be given the full resources to do so. Only Māori can fix what is, is, is made for Māori. Um, I don't think a system that is created by non-Māori can do that for us. Decolonisation, decolonisation first requires um, non-Māori to acknowledge the rights of Māori and what those frameworks might, might look like in terms of a better relationship. And given the events of the last couple of days, what did you make of the British High Commission's expression of regret for those first encounters between James Cook uh, and Māori? The British High Commissioners, well... I'll, I'll give you a good look on what I thought of it. There we go. 250 years of colonisation. OK, thank you very much for your time, Maurice. We appreciate it. That is Maurice Lant, who thank is organising a protest at Tūranganui Akiwa in Gisborne for the Tuia 250 commemorations. Calvin Davis, the Minister for Māori Crown Affairs, will join me shortly. If you want to get in touch with us on Q&A, it's easy enough. You can find us on Twitter just by searching NZQ&A. You can flick us an email, q&a at tvnz.co.nz. As well as that, you can find us on Facebook. In a couple of minutes, we will be back. We'll take you to Tūranganui Akiwa, Gisborne, to see what Minister for, Ma uh, for Crown Māori Affairs Kelvin Davis says about tomorrow's Tuia 250 commemorations. Got a small community having to fundraise to get a lawyer to fight against the Chinese government. This is the Kaipara community fighting against a Chinese company. They're planning a mega landfill just north of Auckland, but will it go ahead? Welcome back to Q&A. We'll return now to Tūranganui Akiwa, Gisborne, where a dawn ceremony will greet a flotilla of tall ships, including a replica of James Cook's endeavour. We just heard from Maurice Lant, who will be protesting tomorrow. She told us Cook's legacy has been devastating for Māori. Now, Māori Crown Relations Minister Kelvin Davis is with us. Tēnā koe. Why should we celebrate this anniversary? Kia ora, Jack. 
Well, it's about commemorating uh, the first encounters of 250 years ago. Um, we know that our history hasn't been a fairy tale for Māori, so you know we, the protesters, the people who are going to protest, they're welcome to protest. But it's about uh, looking towards the future uh, and making sure the future is better than the past for all New Zealanders. In what ways have Māori benefited from colonialism? Well, look how how they benefited from colonialism. Uh, it's a, we've got to look at at the 250 years since then and uh, where we've come as a nation together. That's what's mm. most important uh, to me. Uh, you know, it, like I say, it hasn't been a fairy tale, but. Uh, we, what we need to do is make sure that our future is going to be better than the past, that we are working together as New Zealanders to make sure mm. uh, all the things that have uh, affected and hurt Māori, uh, that we mitigate them, that we change them, and that's what our government's working very hard to do. The protesters see James Cook as a symbol of colonialism. Can you think of any examples where Māori have benefited from colonialism? Well, I think uh, there's a lot of people who uh, would rather that we uh, that James Cook didn't arrive, but we mm. can't change history. We we can improve the future. We we need to work together and make sure that um, that our people do benefit uh, uh, from uh, what we do as as politicians, as governments. Uh, we've got to make sure that uh, we're all in this together. That mm. we co-design um, a, a future together, um, and and make sure that Māori are at the forefront of what that future looks like. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you say, you, say you, you want an honest conversation about those early interactions. We know, of course, that those early interactions in Tūranganuiakiwa between James Cook's men and Māori ended very badly for Māori. Māori were killed in those uh, earliest contacts. But again, as for an honest conversation, can you think of any ways in which Māori have benefited from European contact or colonialism? Well, if we talk about honest conversations, we need to make sure that the names of Te Māro and Te Rāko, those tūpuna that, some of the tūpuna that died at that time, that their names are as uh, easily recognisable as Cook's name itself. Mm. You know, Te Māro was, a, was a, uh, someone who feared his... Uh, he was a gardener, he feared the whole tribe uh, and the devastating loss that that would have had on the people at the time. Um, so, you know, we, we've got to make sure that uh, the whole story is told and it's not just the selective part of the story. How should we remember James Cook? Uh, look, he's part of our history. Um, uh, I know that I'd rather uh, lift up and uh, promote the stories of our, ancest our ancestors uh, from the time that they sailed across the Pacific Ocean a thousand years ago to the settlement here uh, and tell their stories uh, more than uh, anyone else's stories. That, for me, is is an important part of Tuya because that's the part that's been left out of most uh, of the history books. Uh, and I think it's Tuya is the uh, the right time to start telling those stories and making sure that all New Zealanders learn about um, all the stories of our people mm. uh, from a thousand years ago, as well as the uh, 250 years since uh, the first encounters here. Māori queer. You are Māori and you are a representative of the Crown. Do you feel at all awkward leading tomorrow's delegation? No, not at all. Uh, that's why I'm in politics. That's why I'm in Parliament, because I, I believe uh, that I, I have skills that will help uh, Māori to um, grow and, and develop uh, 
my background as an educator, but also my role as a Minister of, of uh, Crown Māori Relations, you know, I'm in a perfect position to actually move us into the future, to, to move us forward. Uh, and that's what I'm in politics for, to make, uh, make sure that we, Māori have better outcomes in the future than we had in the past. And do you think James Cook should be remembered as someone who has had a positive influence on New Zealand history? Well, whether it's positive or whether it's negative, um, he arrived here and we can't change that. It's but, about but what looking you, to the future, did, making did sure, a, as I've said. Yeah, did, I mean, did he, have a, did he have a positive influence on New Zealand? Because, I mean, there will be many people watching this evening who see James Cook as an important part of their ancestry or their history, this, their connection with, with this whenua, with this land. Yeah, he's just one man. Uh, you know, our history has been um, full of many, many people, some good, some bad, uh, and he's just one person uh, who happened to arrive here 250 years ago tomorrow. Uh, and you look at all the uh, many positive Māori role models and examples, they're the sort mm. of people that we should be talking about and promoting uh, and making sure that their deeds are well remembered by everybody. Should the local iwi hold a pōwhiri tomorrow? Well, that's a decision for, for the local people. I'm from up north, it's not my place to tell people what, uh, in their own patch what they should do. Uh, so it's entirely over to them and, and we support them uh, in whatever their, their decisions are. Tēnā thanks for your time. That is the Minister for Māori and Crown Relations, Kelvin Davis. Coming up on Q&A, Kaipara residents say they'll gridlock State Highway 1 with protesters if consent for, is granted for a new landfill in Dome Valley, just north of Auckland. They claim pollutants leaching into local waterways will be unavoidable and catastrophic for the nearby Kaipara Harbour. Here's Fina Owen. I can't sleep at night. I cry. <laughs> Um, yeah. The cause of Susan Speedy's distress is the proposed Dome Valley landfill. I've had these banners up for at least eight months. She lives on State Highway 1 just south of Wellsford. If the landfill goes ahead, it'll mean 300 to 500 rubbish truck movements on this stretch of road a day. But she's more worried about the landfill's potential effect on waterways. This is exactly the wrong place to put a landfill. The landfill is going to be in this area over here. Ngati Whātua or Kaipara, Kaumātua, Makaira Meru. All the water, that, and there are many tributaries already inside that area where the landfill is going to be, that'll flow down into the Hōtio River right here. And this will flow down to Tauho, and that's where it comes out into the Kaipara Harbour. is unacceptable to me about the risk of the poisoning of the Kaipara Harbour by this enormous landfill. It's not a little landfill. This is of a scale we've never, never seen before. A year ago, the Overseas Investment Office granted approval to Waste Management to buy a thousand hectares of land through here. Who are Waste Management? Well, they're owned by the Chinese government. It's a daunting, daunting effort to try and come up against the Chinese government. Along the road to the proposed landfill, we met its closest neighbour, Phil Tomlinson. Rather stressful. We didn't see this one coming. A few months ago, Iwi put a rahui on the waterways in this area to protect the kaipara. 
we have government ministers talking about how water is a taonga. And here they are completely shafting the waterways. They're placing a landfill on top of an area that is riddled with waterways. How can they, on one hand, you know, be saying we're doing the right thing, and on the other hand, dumping this on top of the um, catchment area for the Kaipara? Auckland Council told Q&A it's now waiting for more information from waste management. Then commissioners for the council will decide whether to grant resource consent for the landfill. That's likely to be next year. Auckland Council could stop this dead in its tracks just like that. Away from exactly where we are now. But Michelle Carmichael from the group Fight the Tip says they're preparing to lawyer up. So in effect, we've got a small community having to fundraise to get a lawyer to fight against the Chinese government. There have been no Green Party people say anything. There are no Greenpeace people have said anything. No political parts of any of the big political parties have said anything at all about this. Nothing. Along with finding suitable landfill sites for growing cities, erosion of old landfills is a looming problem in New Zealand. In Auckland, apparently there are 81 landfills that are possibly going to be inundated by the sea because they've all been put in mangrove swamps. I think we've got a real opportunity, certainly with this enormous project and the scale of what's happening here right across New Zealand to be looking again at how we're dealing with our waste. One of the options is that the very company that's going to be proposing or is proposing this landfill, Waste Management Limited, Chinese owned, that same company in China is putting up waste to energy plants. They don't want to do that here, they just want to put in a landfill. We'll have thousands of young people to come and support us. We'll gridlock state highway number one. It, it's going to take more than just the locals. In the meantime, this Kite Brigadian has questions for Minister Eugenie Sage, who approved the sale of this land to waste management. Minister, how can you authorise consent under the Overseas Investment Act of 2005 when you haven't consulted fully with mana whenua and DOC have also objected to this landfall? I put that question to the Minister. I spoke to Eugenie Sage. As Land Information Minister, she gave approval for the sale of Dome Valley land to the Chinese company that wants to develop the new landfill. So, why did she do it? Because it was a decision made as Minister of Land Information under the Overseas Investment Act, and because, unfortunately, we need landfills to put waste. If this application hadn't been approved, it would have meant a lot more trucks going right across Auckland because the landfill uh, in the area is uh, close to capacity. What, what totally do you make of, what, sorry, sorry to interrupt. What do you make of the concerns of the locals, though, who, who are concerned not only about the environment but indeed about the traffic along State Highway 1? Totally appreciate people don't want rubbish trucks going past their front gate, but it's a decision for Auckland Council uh, through the Resource Management Act. They will hear public submissions, make their decision whether to approve it or not, and what, if they do approve it, what conditions are put in place in order to ensure that waterways are protected. After the break, the rest of my interview with Eugenie Sage is the cost of taking rubbish to the dump looks set to increase. And we're in the US state of Arizona. A Donald Trump stronghold at the last election. His supporters aren't happy about talk of impeachment. 
there's going to be a civil war. It's going to be bad. It's not going to get any better until there's some serious things happen. Kia ora, welcome back. Just before the break, Eugenie Sage defended her decision to allow a Chinese company to buy land for a rubbish dump north of Auckland. We still need landfills, she said. New Zealand simply isn't set up to process the waste we send to the dump every year. More than a tonne for every household. So I asked the Associate Environment Minister, why do Kiwis produce so much rubbish? I think we need a major system change, and that's what this government is about. And we've got about 10 years of very little action to catch up on in fundamentally changing the amount of waste we produce and what we do with products at the end of their life. What do you mean by a system change? What do you want to see changed? Well, China gave us a strong message with its national sword decision um, to end the import of the world's waste. Mm. So we've got to establish more reprocessing capability here in New Zealand. We can create jobs, we can make our economy more efficient if we think about how products are designed, what materials they're made of, whether they've got a long life, and what happens to the materials in those products at the end of their life. How can they be recovered and not go to landfill? Well, let's discuss the central government role in this space. When you were on Q&A last year, you talked about work being done around the waste disposal levy, which applies to landfills that accept household waste. Currently, the levy's at $10 a tonne, but it only applies to 45 of our 426 landfills, about 11% of our landfills. Now, you previously indicated you would support increasing that levy and perhaps expanding it across more landfills. Where is that work at at the moment? Uh, it's very close to a paper being put to Cabinet and then uh, with, if Cabinet approves that, then a discussion paper going out to the public about expanding the levy uh, and potentially increasing it. H how much will you be expanding it? Well, that is a decision for the Cabinet to make and it will, there'll be options in the discussion paper. Mm. What I would point out is that this landfill levy, all of the revenue that it raises is recycled into minimising waste. And at the moment it's raising about $32 million annually. Councils get half of that for their waste minimisation initiatives and the remainder goes in grants to progressive businesses mm. and community organisations. So it's a real chance to provide an incentive to divert from landfill and also to assist councils, community organisations as businesses make the change so that we reduce waste going to landfill. So the Ministry for the Environment reviewed the levy in 2017 and found it should be expanded to cover more landfills and that the levy itself should be increased. Currently, the, the levy, uh, like I said, is at $10 a tonne. The OECD said that is far too low. In July of last year, you told us you needed more time for more advice. But here we are, fast approaching the end of 2019, more than two years since that ministry's recommendations came through. Why is this taking so long? Because there is so much work to do in the waste space because it's a big challenge and we're on our way, uh, but we've got a lot of catching up to do. In that two years, we have phased out single-use plastic shopping bags. We have launched a task force to respond to China's National Sword Initiative to recharge our recycling system. Mm. And just recently have announced that the ministry is doing work with Auckland and Marlborough councils on a container but, return but, but isn't scheme. But this isn't this levy itself a no-brainer? 
I mean, the Ministry for the Environment has given you explicit advice in this space. Clearly, uh, there's, there's a lot of public support. Most councils increase significantly incre uh, would support uh, significantly increasing the, the, the levy up to $140 a tonne, 14 times its current rate. So where is the resistance? Uh, at the moment, a lot of the costs of dealing with waste uh, fall on the communities and on nature. Uh, so that's what the landfill levy will make sure mm. that it's actually p paying for some of those costs. It's not freeloading on the environment. But there is work to be done in terms of uh, how the staging of the expansion operates and also developing an investment plan for the revenue that the levy will generate. And so that work has been underway for several months now. We are close to going out um, to Cabinet with a paper and then going out with a discussion. Paper. Why wasn't this work done before you were in Government? You should ask the former national government. No, but, that. but I mean, why didn't you have this have this in place? Like I say, that review was through in 2017. The OECD has been saying for several years now that we need to increase the levy. So why didn't you do anything when you were in opposition to plan Because for this? in opposition, you have a very small number of staff as your resource. Uh, coming into government, we had inherited a very small team in the Ministry for the Environment. That has since expanded. This government is acting to deal mm. with our waste challenges and expanding the landfill levy is on the agenda and there should be um, an announcement soon. So how much would you like to see us paying? I will be informed by Cabinet colleagues mm -hmm. and public consultation. And we've looked at what happens in Australia and elsewhere to work out um, just the way in which it should be expanded and uh, any increases. But, but give us a bit of an indication here. Like I say, in Australia... I'm not going to pre-empt well, pre well, Cabinet. Well, well, I mean, it's $140 in Australia. It's up to $300 a tonne in, in some parts of Europe. Where on the scale do you think would be appropriate? At the 140 end? No, or? Not, not, not going to pre-empt Cabinet, Jack. That is Minister Eugenie Sage. Stick around. Up next, we'll take you to Arizona, where Donald Trump supporters are fed up with the Democrats. How will they react if the president is impeached? Kia welcome back to Q&A. Democrats in the US House of Representatives believe they have enough votes to push ahead with impeaching President Donald Trump. That's before a proper impeachment inquiry has been concluded. And even though it's unlikely the Republican-controlled Senate will vote to impeach the president, it's extraordinary how quickly the Democrats are moving given how long many of them previously resisted calls for impeachment. To get a sense, though, of what the president's staunch supporters think of the developments, our US correspondent Rebecca Wright travelled to Trump country in northern Arizona, where they're threatening to march on Washington. Saturday morning in Sedona, northern Arizona. As the sun rises over its fiery rock formations, we're on the road, asking the president's supporters what they think of the political fire that's been burning in the 12 days since Democrats launched an impeachment inquiry. He's not perfect, he's rude, obnoxious, but we didn't elect him to be perfect or the great guy. We elected him to get things done. What about the Democrats? What do you think about them in pursuing impeachment of this president? As far as I'm concerned, um, they need to just back off, let the president do his job. I don't think that's fair. That's not what America is about. What is America about to you? Having freedom. They're pulling the, our choice of freedom away from us. And so what do you think about the impeachment inquiry? 
Well, far, farce. But if this don't work out, they'll come up with something else. In one of America's most picturesque landscapes, they're angry the specter of impeachment now hangs over the president. In one of these days, people are going to lose the confidence in this government, and you're going to see it fall apart. So I it'll happen in our lifetime. Oh, it feels like it's falling apart a little bit right now. Mm -hmm. You'll probably see a turn for probably in January, because this will get really bad, and this impeachment will just separate this party and separate the whole country. And they're openly talking here about any attempt to impeach Donald Trump, triggering an uprising. Yes, yes, and it's not going to get, there's going to be a civil war, it's going to be bad, it's not going to get any better until there's some serious things happen. Down in Cottonwood, we find the idea also being freely discussed among Trump's supporters. What do you think will happen if the Democrats impeach? I think they're going to have uh, people in the streets, you know, I, I, I don't think it's going to go sweet. I think they're going to have, you know, people coming out and our side protesting. We never do. And it's like, come on, people, you know, get in the fight. It doesn't feel as though America is really on the brink of a civil war, but the idea has become a right-wing talking point, amplified by presidential tweet, and it is ricocheting around his support base. Hi, sir. How are you guys doing? We're pretty good. We're in town talking to people about impeachment. It needs to stop. It needs to stop now. And if it does not stop, they will force millions of Americans to go to Washington, D.C., fill the buildings and clean the place out. That's what needs to be done. We need to walk in with nary a weapon by the millions, fill the buildings behind these people in Congress and run them out the door. It's perhaps meant more as a warning to incite fear among the left about pressing ahead with indicting Donald Trump. I mean, he's standing up for we the people, and they're not hurting him, they're hurting us. They're hurting all the people of the United States that voted for Trump. Because this isn't just political, it's personal for people like Lucy and the Trump supporters we meet in the southern city of Tucson at a classic car show. I am a voting far right-wing Christian Republican. John is one of those who felt left behind under the Obama administration. We were forgotten. What about us? We didn't count anymore. It's like Hillary Clinton said, you know, the deplorables. It's what does it feel like to be left behind in a country like the United States of America? I didn't like it, you know, it, you know to be out there. I mean, it's a funny feeling. Mm, in your own country? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, in my own country, yeah. How is this going to end? I don't know. But it's the first time John's felt represented in this country for a long time, so he will continue to back President Trump. And he's also prepared for anything to happen if the country continues down this polarised, divided road. There might be some problems with people out here. You know, and I think, okay, we need to just calm down, but I know that there's going to be a rift that occurs, you know, and I hope it doesn't go shooting, because that's not good. Rebecca Wright reporting there. And while President Trump clearly has strong support in Arizona, polls suggest it will be a battleground state in next year's election. The Democrats haven't won Arizona since Bill Clinton was president more than 20 years ago. That's us for this week. Tonight is up next. Nā mihi ki Thanks for your messages. And thanks to the Q&A team. Hey, Wiki. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9.30.
Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.